So, David, welcome. Welcome to the Wine Saves Lives podcast. Yeah, thank you, Steve. Pleasure to be with you today. It's nice to be with you as well. We'll tell people where you are speaking from in just a second, but, and this is maybe germane to my question. So how many frequent flyer miles do you log each year? Probably never enough is the answer, though. In, in today's world, that's probably uh, technically the wrong response to that, that that question. Literally, because I spend uh, half of the year here in Australia and half in France, It's it, it, I used to do it more frequently when I had a, a job and an employer and, and so on, but now it's just my own personal passion and, and company. It's one trip either way at the moment. So never enough miles, never unfortunately. Enough. That's the way we are. So you now, I read your first book or one of your one of your books. I don't know if it was your first one, Cabbage from the, the Cabbage one. to Cab Front. The first uh, one. And we'll talk a little bit about that too as we get cool. into this. So you're in, so you're making six sort of six month stays, half the year stays in, in each of these two right. spots. Yep. That may, that makes unpacking the suitcase a little easier. Yeah, look, you adapt very quickly to this process. There's no great privilege in life as you would know yourself and dragging whatever it is, 100 pounds of luggage around the world. That just does nothing for anybody. Yeah, you get to be pretty smart in that you have, I have stuff at the winery and I have stuff here in Australia that I lock up and lock away and you travel minimally between the two. The only challenge is, again, you will appreciate as a guy in the wine business is our business is about wine and it's about what's in the bottle and samples do have to move between one and the other. And that's the most complex bit is dragging a, a box of samples around the world. But progressively, you get to travel lighter and lighter. And in a digital world, that's quite easy to do now. I used to go with hard copies of books. I used to have everything in the drag on bag on the plane. And now it comes down to pretty much laptop and iPad and away you go. Awesome. Awesome. You are you are in Bordeaux. You Correct. are in a, a, a little town called Cardin in yep. Bordeaux. Wouldn't qualify and, as a town. I would. Would we got four hundred people? It's it's classic French sort of village style. There's little villages dotted all over the place, and ours right. is a little sort of village with made up of hamlets and doesn't really have a centre any longer. But that's that's the that's, way it is. That's interesting. I mean, you're in a way, I think, living a dream that a lot of people who don't know the wine business presupposes what it's all about, right? You move to a little French village. And all of a sudden you have wine to pedal and, and it, it's a very different reality, isn't it? It is a very different reality from that. Uh, at the same time, as I think you'll appreciate as well, that there are enormous uh, in life, you know, and they don't usually start with the bank account, uh, but there are a lot of other benefits that are not so tangible. And certainly I do benefit from those. But yeah, running a wine business is... Yeah, like any business, it's a business. Yeah, sure. although we start really with ours is created out of a very specific mission about looking after the the culture and heritage of our little village and the, the and about stopping, if you like, the whole processes of winemaking being bulldozed out and, and being built on with housing estates. Nevertheless, it still remains a business, and that has plenty of challenges on a daily basis. And the majority of those have nothing to do with the vineyard and nothing to do with making wine. <laughs> They're all about commercial or legal or regulatory or whatever somebody's decided to do somewhere in the world just to stop you doing commerce in a normal, free and open manner. <laughs> Indeed. And that is something that I can I have a great familiarity with, unfortunately. Uh, you you write very lovingly of Cardin and you write lovingly of your neighbors. Absolutely. Uh, you're in Melbourne, which is obviously not a small little village. <laughs> the biggest um, village in Australia now. <laughs> there, there you are. <laughs> the global village, right? It's a, They're all villages, just different sizes. What is it that most, what is it that takes the longest to shed <laughs> coming from Melbourne to Cardin and, and what takes it the longest to get back into the rhythms of being in the small village? Yeah, look, I, um, it, it, I, I've been doing it obviously for a while. So I've had that property, not as a winery, but I had the property and lived there in France. I oh, look, not for very long every year at the beginning, but it started out as a holiday home effectively. But it's been there in my life for over 30 years. I've actually had it 
by about a couple of months longer than I've actually lived in Australia, which is a completely weird and different conversation in itself, but all part <laughs> yeah. of the wonderful story. Look, after a time, you, you, I, I don't know, I just log into it and log out of it. And people always talk to me and they come and say, how do you, when you get off an airplane or something in Melbourne, how do you remember to drive on the correct side of the road, which is not the right side of the road here, it's the left side of the road. Right. And you, and then similarly in France, you just get out and you get into a car and you do it. And I don't know, Stephen, how that happens. I, I <laughs> you just readily adapt and it's a different sort of, of life but you get around in different ways. And I don't know, you just, it just somehow happens. And there are special things that you do in, in, in each location that you can't do in the other location. And you just enjoy that and, and go with the flow. And you just treat a small village like a small village. Just a, They don't always behave like that internally. But for me, you just treat them like a bunch of local people. And we're always a bit of a weird one because nobody can understand why the hell we do what we do. So that's okay. <laughs> the fact that you have been there for as long as you have been is a testament to perseverance, obviously, and a testament to a real love for what it is that that village offers. Certainly it is. What, how long were you there before the mission for Paradise Rescued really came into to form? Yeah. The- yeah, look, it, it's a good question. And we are... And I or we are very much mission driven. It is, I always, as you can see up on the the sort of, to my whatever side of that is, the left-hand side of my screen, (laughs) the other way that you look at it, what we've done and how we've gone about and thinking this business has has led to some spin-offs as well, which are very important. And one of the things that I developed out of that, and I've used even back in big business, doesn't resonate quite so easily there, although large companies like to talk about their mission and their vision and the passion for what we got for doing it. But certainly in our context, the mission has been everything. And when we have visitors that come to a wine, and I guess you probably do the same as well. You love that relationship with your customers and you're very keen to show them the things that make the spark and put the buzz into your life and to your business. And it is quite personal. And for us, literally, it's all quite small. So in the background to the backdrop on the Zoom call here, that is the little property. This is micro small. Everybody thinks, oh, it's Bordeaux. It's a chateau. There's 300 rooms. and It's just a bungalow that's got three very small bedrooms in. And if I move that way, that building, you can see that's the winery. In most people's world, that's called a garage. Right. So you take people out of that property. You walk straight down to the front. Um, you go over the let's call it a crossroads. It's actually just where two roads intersect. You couldn't call it a crossroads. Um, one side does have a stop sign on it. Um, and did you walk across that and you turn right into our Cabernet Franc vineyard and all this takes about 20 seconds and you do it on a daily basis, obviously. Right. And then you literally look and behind you at that point are our neighbors. There's a road, a ditch, and then the vineyard, and as you look across that vineyard on the hill beyond that, about less than a kilometre away, is this 12th century church. Now, again, for someone either like yourself living in the US or for myself living in Australia, it's sort of a weird concept because the history is so short. Although my origins are British, so you're quite not exactly used to walking down and finding Roman coins rolling around the street. There is a, there's an enormous amount of history and archaeology, but in, in the context of where a lot of my customers are, this is just unbelievable that you can do that. And it is that specific church on that hill and what it means to the village and it, what it means to the piece of land where the Cabernet Front Vineyard is that determines everything. The mission is that pretty much, to put it in a nutshell, that will stay as it is. <laughs> yeah. right. That's exactly. the non-negotiable. Right. And you probably have the same. I I don't know. You know, the, the, you do what you do for a reason, not Indeed. because it's like hereditary. Indeed, there there are easier ways to make a living than being in the wine business. Oh, absolutely. And we I my son is the seventh generation of the family in the business. Now, my family is the oldest winemaking family in the country. We started wow. in eighteen fifty four, and it. I have a master's in literature. I went to school in the East Coast. I was going to teach college, write books, that sort of thing, and. 
I had no intention of getting into the wine business. I sweat my share of cellars and disgorged my share of sparkling wine, champagne back in the day uh, when I was a kid. And it wasn't really until I got to make wine when I came back to California in the mid nineties that I, that the scales fall from your eyes and you realize, oh my God, there's a connection to things that are depthless, right? They, they go down forever and ever. And there's a, if you have a certain affinity for those kinds of relationships, that kind of bottomlessness that is about farming and about wine and how it changes every sip and every year as a different vintage that you get, there's a siren call there. And there's just, there is something about walking around a vineyard and seeing the change from season to season and knowing that site is yours and knowing that you're, you've rehabilitated it when you first acquired it. And there's a there's a, a, a pride there, I think, all out of proportion to the size of the estate, no matter how many hectares it is. Yeah, it, 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 is, it is fascinating because there's almost no other side of agriculture that I can think of where that connection with what one does and the piece of land you do it on is so strong. You go out there and you grow, I don't know, corn or something, and it's 3,000 hectares of it. It's like you walk outside your house and you go, there's another bushel of corn. It, right. it probably doesn't drive <laughs> it the same way. Whereas you go outside and there's one of your vines and it's almost a personal relationship with this thing. And two as small as us, people actually ask whether each of our vines has a name and it goes, no, probably a number, but not a name. <laughs> it is extremely personal. And the amount of detail that goes into it is dramatic. At the same time, the amount of scrutiny on the product we make is hideous. <laughs> Indeed. Uh, there's a lot of, in, in the be, in the best of worlds, there's a lot of positive scrutiny once people are tasting what it is that you've made. Yep. But the, as you said, the governmental and regulatory piece of this thing is almost an insurmountable challenge for small wineries. There's just right. so much paperwork. And you don't get that same thing happening as well. When you go and buy a loaf of bread, you don't have a discussion with the baker or the wherever you got it or the retailer you got it from or the supplier. Is it organically certified? And can you show me your certificate now? <laughs> and can you tell me how many milligrams per square acre you put in of whatever right. you've added to the to the soil and and, and whatever? It's, no, it's a loaf of bread, mate. Do you want to buy it or not? yeah and notwithstanding those amazing loaves of sourdough bread that you might get from an an artisanal baker there isn't any kind of equation equivalence between wine and and and, in my mind practically any other product that, that you can get that has that emotional um weight to it, um, that, that has such a, a, an ability to give pleasure and create memories and cement relationships and all those things. Yeah, yeah no, that, that, is, that is a unique thing. When you live in France, you do quite often discuss the quality of bread, which sure. I like to say was getting better every day, but I'm not sure the, the, the general rules of growing <laughs> industrialization is actually swallowing up some of that as well, which is fascinating because I've got a, a neighbor there and very good neighbors of ours, and one of their sons is, just turned 16 and he's gone off to do an apprenticeship to become effectively a a, a pastry chef come oh, nice. baker come whatever and i look at him and go man i'm proud of you it, it's his skills are in that area it will be a success but nevertheless he, he's taken on an artisanal craft right as someone and even after the first few months you can see it in his eyes he's got that passion to do that. But generally, wine is in a unique glass, and you sit around with a glass of wine and a bottle of wine, and it creates its own story yep. when you're sitting there. Yep. And yeah, a loaf of bread or whatever rarely does that. <laughs> yeah, indeed. It can contribute to a nice story with some cheese and, and wine, of course. But there, if I remember uh, from Cabbage Patch to Cabernet Franc properly, when you yep. bought the property, did you think the Mer- did you think that the vineyard was actually Merlot? Or um, yeah, Merlot I mean, there's, was- there's different phases to it, Stephen. The initial property was literally the house that you see behind in the photograph, but not the vineyard. Okay. Now, the vineyard behind in that photograph is actually the uh, uh, Merlot vineyard, and it's only a- evolution over time that led to purchasing the vineyard. So it was a was a choice and a decision that at a certain point in time. When the village started to fairly rapidly increase in size, 
and new development was springing up all over the place, it was a decision that, do I actually want to live back in another town? And it sounds a bit hypocritical that I, you want to spend one chunk of your life and portion living in a city like Melbourne, which is a you know four or five million people city, right. pretty sophisticated, great standard of living and everything else. And then you go, ah, no, look, I'm in the countryside here, so this is my personal little piece of property. No, you don't build a house there. So there is, there's always an element of minor hypocrisy in the whole thing, but it was a decision that said through a series of events that you could see this whole landscape starting to change. And the opportunity, if you like, none of the opportunity came up. The opportunity was thrust in front of my face. And it was like, you're going to have to write the check here or probably leave the village and leave them to it. And obviously the history was made in that moment. But literally the vineyard bit started in 2010. The property was purchased. The actual house was purchased in 1992. So there's a good bit of time between the two. And once you Bert got started on the vineyard, then... Yep, the, the whole of, of life dramatically changed in there because it was a totally different reason for going there and being there than there was right. previously. Are you still, are you, I'm assuming here, are when you first get to this part of France, you're, you are, you're not a native Frenchman, obviously, and you're, uh, and you're maybe partly native now you've been there as long as you've been there, but how, has the response from your neighbors and from folks in the area changed towards you from the beginning of your relationship with Cardin to after planting vineyards help to slow down progress, progress, help to slow down development? Yeah, the relationship is different in different corners as a result of that, because obviously there are some people who would have seen the opportunity to develop the village further. That said, the people who sold you the land, they had that opportunity as well. And okay, I guess at the end of the day, they're not worried one way or the other. They got right. the land sold, they got it sold at the same, pretty much the same price. And therefore, they're happy. Um, right. What I have seen probably change, and, it's, and it varies week by week and month by month and year by year, is how you, you relate to a, a community. There are a lot of people that understand what you're doing and then as you will have observed probably in life as well there's a lot of people who don't even notice what the heck's going on one day to the next yeah probably the majority of people and you and then you then start to talk to them they go oh, and you've lived in a village for over 30 years you've been pursuing a business as a, as a winery there for what's now coming into its 14th year and and people still don't even know you exist there and i, I do a lot of work obviously in the area of human psychology and, and the power of our visual senses. And even though sight is our most important sense, people can walk straight past the place and never even know it's a winery and it's got a damn great board outside and a, and a flag <laughs> flying and you go, what did you think that was all about? Yes. <laughs> yes. But yeah, generally, generally, when you start telling the story, um, people are pretty empathetic with what you do. Um and one of the, the, the measures for, for, for us is when new people arrive and the people are always changing and the greater value of what we do doesn't feature in people's lives when they need to move or go somewhere else. Oh, and I understand that. And new people arrive and you get them involved in what you're doing. And the measure right. is, yeah, do they turn out there and put their boots on and, and come and join us for harvest day? Because um, right. that's the symbiotic relationship. I, I'll take care of the rest of the bills, but We'd like you to turn up for Harvest Day because then you'll appreciate really what we do. Right. And um, and our decision is to do this organically. Our decision is that we're not going to have millions of machines running around here, spraying it with whatever, ripping it up at harvest time, doing whatever they do. Mm-hmm. So part of the deal is you've got to come and help us. And by the way, I will give you a good meal at the end of it. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like a wonderful exchange. You were born in England. Correct. Yeah. And you, your folks, what did your family do? What did your folks do? Yeah, it is interesting. My my father and my grandfather, my, my grandfather was the founder of a, what's called, a, he was a master printer. That meant something different back in his era too. It doesn't really exist any longer. But basically he was a print, a printer. 
and my father inherited that business after the Second World War. It's passed to him. He was the only member of the family surviving that that period of life. And so he took that on. But as as you and I would know, as you probably look to your left or right of you, there's a printer in the corner of that room there. And that's how we do life now. Yeah, Everybody has one of those if you need one at all. Back in my grandfather's day, every single thing, you had headed notepaper. Right. And that's how you... I remember that from that era, yeah, and you might do too. Some, uh, you know, Dad, I've just moved house. Can you do me some letterhead? <laughs> <laughs> David will sort some out for you. You had uh, 250 sheets of whatever right. size it was, and that was you want, you want to write a letter or something. Today, you just go to the thing called email and hope That's it right. gets there as well. Um, right. And it's changed. So that was the sort of line of thinking in that, and... It's part of my education. When I went to university, I went to be a chemical engineer. And I think probably fortunately, my parents were wise enough to work out that a third generation print business industry was not going to be viable. Interesting. I just think I probably had that opportunity had I wished and had some passion for it. And I knew the business reasonably well because my father did a lot of good things for me and he got me involved at a young stage. So you could, you look at all the different facets, not the glitter and the name on the outside and bravo for the family. And it was, it was a business after all, you know, it's um, sure. And you got to see the people and you got to meet the people and you got an understanding of people and how business worked. And just in the daily conversations going on in the background, always at home, you got a pretty clear idea of just how fun and difficult that was. At the same time, you always had that culture was in there. You're from a, a small business family. That sticks with you. Absolutely. There's a, there's, you hope anyway from generation to generation, a sense of industriousness, uh, a desire to do whatever it is that you choose to do well. And, and that's the hope that you I have for my grandchildren and, and my yeah. kids. You want your kids to be happy. You want them to be um, self-sufficient. You want you want them to succeed in whatever a realm they decide to to chase. So you you went to to university knowing that you wanted to be a chemical engineer before you got to school. That's probably the same question I'd bounce back to you, Stephen. When you went to university, did you have any clue what you wanted to be or do? Yeah, a, a vague sense. I'm glad it didn't come to fruition. Frankly, I wanted to be a lawyer when I left home and yeah. went 3,000 miles across the country. But thank God that didn't happen. I, look, I had, yeah, I had the the education and my own natural abilities were were in, more in the scientific um, area than the arts. Um, I was fortunate to have a very broad education that also included a lot of arts and stuff in there and language skills. And that's where some of my French came from was that I was pre-trained in speaking a level of French, not to the level I would have to do it today, but good enough. And that was all in my education. But nevertheless, maths, physics, chemistry was where my standout things were going to be. Right, and so, right. You, know, you got a choice. I was always down to earth and a practical sort of guy. I didn't wasn't going to be in research or anything like that. So, and I had a couple of friends who worked in the petrochemical industry, and you got a flavour of that. And they made some introductions. You did a bit of that, so you went down that route. And it's, it's always easy in life to to look back and have regrets. I found that's not a good measure of life. You've made some decisions at the time based on the best information you had which normally at the age of something like 18, 19, 20 is pretty limited, and you get on with it. And I still look back on that and others, things that I might now have done differently and pushed differently in different directions. I have to say that was a, a really good training I got and a really good – I've had 40 years in that industry, which is behind me now, and great experience. That's wonderful. You were, was wine a part of the family life? Was wine a thing in, in, at the house? Yes, I'd have to say would be the answer. And I, I, I mean, you, for you, it would have been, it was running all over the house, obviously. Yeah. Yeah. That was not in our background. When you lived in England back in those days, today right. the world was different. Climate change has given them a, a, a new lease on life on growing grapes right. there. And they're doing a pretty good job of it too, I'd have to say. Oh. But no, look, it wasn't always flying around the house. And it was, but it was always there. And I was very fortunate again to, 
be given what I would describe as a responsible upbringing into that space. And it was accepted that, yeah, there is going to be, just because we've got children here doesn't mean that all drinks are off the table sort of thing. No, it's here and you, son, you're going to have to learn to appreciate this. And I always remember the reason probably that passion started was that somewhere, I don't know, and I can't remember the exact details. I must have been about 16 or something like that. My grandmother, uh, my paternal grandmother, and which with whom I had probably the best relationship of all of my grandparents, and which I still remember very fondly, I think it was her that gave me a very thin but colourful book on the vineyards of the world. And you didn't get much detail. So probably France covered two pages, California one page, Spain, Italy, whatever. And there was that started a, a particular passion going for learning and understanding that. And that's where it triggered from and the interest. Although I wouldn't confess to being a good sommelier today, but that's where it started. So when you were looking at a, a vacation home yeah, before you settled where you settled, were you looking, was a vineyard part of the thought process at that point in time as, um, as you wanted to have attached to the house? Directly at that stage, no, as in, do I buy a vineyard and uh, a house at the same time? Absolutely not. That wasn't there. The preoccupation, this will sound really amusing, but the preoccupation was the fact that at the time I was working in the Netherlands, mm. the strong probability, it's back in a different era, we had planned careers and stuff like that, and right. the company said you did that, and so you off you went, you did that sort of thing. Right. Probably big mistake in my overall life to go with that system, but that's partly me and I'm very loyal to what I do. And sure. okay, so David, the most likely thing is after you've finished your time in the Netherlands, you will be going back to the United Kingdom and you'll continue your career there and blah, blah, blah. And it's okay. Okay, fair enough. That makes sense. There's only got one problem with that is that summer holidays look really scruffy and cold. Yeah. Um, <laughs> She I like a bit, a bit of sunshine, a bit of light, but rather than, oh, no, we're all going to go for two weeks to do these two weeks of whatever. <laughs> so at that point, I had to, the first year I was in the Netherlands because of, oh, I do speak French, the family holiday was down in the southwest of France. Mm-hmm. And as you do, you sit there and go, oh, it's a good life here. Yeah, and you're sitting there, it's nine o'clock at night, it's warm, you're sitting outside, you've got a glass of wine and go, I could do one of these. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> One of these <laughs> where it got started. So then I'm pretty down to earth, practical sort of guy. You have to look at things. What's what does it need to have? Yes, I would like it to be in and around vineyards because I did have some of that love and passion for wine. Right. It also creates, as you yourself, vineyards create one of the most incredible outdoor vistas and, and feels to them about where skipping there is. Yeah. Yeah. And then you had to have another thing like international airports and stuff like that. And so if you're talking about somewhere like Southwest France, then Bordeaux was an obvious target. And um, I don't know whether you've done the Bordeaux region or been through it at all, but it is is dramatically intense as viticulture. It's the second largest viticultural region in the world. And the surface area is only really the same size as Greater Melbourne. So it's intense. And so anywhere around the Bordeaux thing, he's going to have vineyard meters away from your house. And you then you get into the search process and all the real estate agents down there go, Monsieur, we've got this broken down wreck. Cancel. Time out. Wrong message. Ah, Monsieur, this is wonderful. You can repair this. No, just give me a small practical property. I want to do fly in, fly out. I don't want to do fly in and 30 years hard labor. Exactly. Uh, (laughs) So eventually you found something relatively modern and uh, and practical, and that's still that same house today. And you can always go back, oh, if only I'd had that house or that house. I don't know. The location, when you sit out there right now of a, of a summer evening and just watch the world go by and the sun go down, as it does beautifully in, in Bordeaux very often, then, yeah. Sounds, sounds, we've, got it, we've got that bit right. Sounds like sounds like Livermore Valley, actually, yeah. this time as well. What does Cabernet Franc mean? <laughs> it's almost, do you, do you find a dictionary to describe that thing? I don't know. You probably have the same difficulty as I will, so I'll reverse the interview to you in a second. But um, 
for, for us, as you, you alluded to earlier, and the, the story is in that book from, from Cabbage Patch to Cabernet Franc, and it really was a pretty much a bad Cabbage Patch. It was completely misunderstood as being Merlot until literally mm. days before signing the final contract and sale contract. And I had no idea. I'll be very honest with that. I probably at that stage knew enough to tell you that most of Bordeaux, and that's the way the messaging still is, unfortunately. We're working hard on that. But most of the wines in Bordeaux are Merlot Cabernet Sauvignon. And the Cabernet Sauvignon is established and probably the Merlot international reputations based on that. And when you're in California, we can have that debate over a glass of wine some other time. But nevertheless, they're still pretty good at it. But the idea of it having Cabernet Franc was was quite interesting. I can still remember the sort of phone call and the timing. Oh, by the way, David, really sorry, forgot to tell you this, but we've looked at our notes. And I find this, it was sold to me by the previous owner. So the previous owner had sold the winery to themselves or part of the land, and then they right. were selling it ongoing for, for development. And we are really sorry, Cabinet, you didn't know. <laughs> you own the... <laughs> and, and of course, that was part of my introduction to what I call the other side of, of Bordeaux wine, which is the side that you and lots of other people don't see in the world. It's a big place. Uh, right. And everything is a Grand Cru Class A about which the world writes about and talks about nonstop. Um, so you saw immediately a different side of that, but it was Cabernet Franc. So you get on with it. And again, the primary thing was starts with the mission. The mission is to sustain this piece of land as an ongoing vineyard. All right, guys, what do we do? Let's get started. How much did I know? Nothing. Reasonable engineers. So you can learn pretty fast what has to be done. It is at the end of the day, you can make it look like a factory and you can think about it as a factory. And for all the listeners there, don't get this wrong. It's not a factory in that sense, but you still have to approach it in a similar professional management way. Yeah, you just have to look at it in a much more biological sense and then get to some other understanding. And unfortunately, in the wine world, we don't do enough of that yet. But you go through and you get started and you start learning. The Vigneron Pascal, she knew nothing. She fortunately had a very smart daughter who knew a lot. And we based all of our learning on what her daughter, Albain, knew. And we got started. So she was getting training and then she would back train me and we would read and learn and observe. And that's what we got started on. So the passion came because it was very close to our hearts. And that although I was the owner, that makes it super close to my heart, but also for Pascal, that was her project. She specifically sought us out because she wanted a small, to run a small vineyard as a vineyard. She wanted to be a vigneron. And the good news is that even now that she has fully retired after three full starts, that passion for our vineyard, if you like, is still there. So I get a message from her every week, and you know, um, did it snow in the vineyard last week? They go, um, you know, I'm here and it's nice temperature and blue sky in Melbourne. I'll, I'll check for you. <laughs> and it got started on that. And it probably the moment that it dawned, it's always a moment for me because it remembers because it was the time my, my father was about to leave the world. And I happened to be in Bordeaux and was tripping between Bordeaux back to the UK while he was unwell. And I remember the first, it would be the start of 2011. We made some wine in 2010. And I remember doing that first tasting. We put it in the barrel really quick. Not sure it was good or bad, but it was in the barrel. And I remember there were eight barrels of it. It was first year success. 2010 was a great vintage in Bordeaux, bar none anyway. And look, there's probably lots of residual non-organic fertilizer hanging around in the soil. So the volume's was all happening. And I remember doing that first tasting and there was about four or five of us locals plus Pascal. And we were just standing around. We all got a glass and we go and get a glass out of the first barrel. And you go, oh, that's interesting. Hmm, that's not bad. Well done us. And you go through, and you, by the time you get to barrel four, you go, barrel one wasn't an accident, was it? Barrel one was the real thing too, as was barrel two, three, four. And I remember at that point making the worst decision of my life, which was to go into the property and pull out a bottle of something that I would call a standard, reasonably good bottle of Bordeaux wine to drink. 
that I would have had any night of the week and said, yeah, that's pretty nice. It certainly wasn't a Grand Cru Class A, but it certainly was not one euro per bottle. And I opened that and tasted it, and that completely messed my palate up. I realized then on our hands that we had something potentially very special. And you had no idea why or how you could create that. The reality was it wasn't just the Cabernet Franc that gave that. There's a lot of what Pascal had managed to achieve over a very quick period of time. But that started a passion off, and that started more of the education off. But it also created an interesting challenge because it was 100% Cabernet Franc. There was no dilution with Merlot or anything like that, and I used those words dilution very deliberately. I was going, um, to, I, I was going to remark on that, and I yeah. appreciate that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, because it, it has unique properties and the, the, you, you found something quite special. And then, of course, as more as you get to learn about the story, one, one's passion for this grape variety has grown from that. And there's nothing I like being, and I'm like, I don't know whether it's just me personally, there's nothing like being a little bit of an underdog. And that's very Australian. And we're going to fight for this corner. Right. So let's get on with this and see where this journey goes because when people started tasting it, they go, that's actually pretty good. I knew no better. Absolutely no better. And I only think, blah, blah, blah. You've done a PhD in viticulture. No, done none of that. Nothing. I'm a chemical engineer, which helps. But you've done nothing. You go, you taste, you look, and you start making improvements on a continual basis. And you had something quite special. And you go, hmm. I'm going to fight for this one. This needs to stay. And everybody goes, I dig it up, waste of time, blah, blah, blah. You go, why? Because when I gave a bottle or a tasting of that to everybody, bar none, they said, that is a superb glass of wine. Do not worry about what the Bordeaux crowd think about Cabernet Franc. You've got something special there. Get on with it. And what was more remarkable about that, Stephen, and that's why the name of the book, it's very British to, to say something is a cabbage patch. It's the backyard thing of having a little bit of a cabbage patch. It's not really much good, but cabbages will grow on it. And that just fuels the, you know, the, the standard position of well, about British cooking and cuisine and stuff like that. <laughs> and um, you've taken something. And even to this day, I look at this and go, this isn't possible. And everybody tells me where the history of that little vineyard came from. And it is a challenge. It, it's not a perfect vineyard, but when you do some right stuff in a particular place, suddenly you create this tower thing. And that's why the second book was always called It's Not About the Dirt, although it does need to be rewritten now that I'm getting more into agrobiology and all that sort of stuff. <laughs> but it really started to create something special and go, no, we can demonstrate something here really special with this piece of land. So... Cabernet Franc, you're on. Let's go. <laughs> For me, they're, 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 every wine I make, every wine I, I, I make, I try to create. And for me, the, the emotional connection between me and the person who drinks the wine is the most important aspect of that transaction. It's the most important aspect for me as a wine lover and drinker. Is this wine, whatever wine it happens to be, am I getting something from this that, that is, that, that, transcends the vinous quality of what you have. Well-made Merlot, well-made Cabernet Sauvignon, well-made Cabernet Franc, all these wines can be lovely, wonderful, better or worse with food. It all depends upon what you like. But there's, there, for me, there's a sense in the best of wines that I'm tasting David Stannard's efforts in the vineyard that year, Stephen Miris's efforts in the cellar that year, all of the stuff, 2020, we had smoke coming from fires north and south of us. It was a totally what we threw 7,000 gallons of wine away. 2020 yeah. vintage, nothing from Livermore Valley. Uh, happens in California. It happens in Australia, obviously, all the time. And the best of wines to me tell that story or, or impute to the wine and to the wine drinker the sense of something greater than just what's in the glass, what's in the bottle. Yeah. And... I can't, I don't know of any other grape that expresses itself not only organoleptically, not only flavors and aromas, not only the complexity of those amazing pyrazine-driven uh, aromas from, from jalapeno and cat's pee and Sauvignon Blanc to smoked paprika in, in Cab Franc that's well-picked uh, from a picking date standpoint that, that has so, provides so much 
mysterious complexity and so much that's so redolent of so many different kinds of experiences as Cab Franc. For me, there's just, it's, I, I talk about bottomlessness of wine a lot, write about it a lot. And that idea seemed for me, Cabernet Franc is the variety that that sort of is the poster wine for that kind of ability to dive into something and get something new every time you go back. So that that's my, what Cab Franc means. It's a relationship, an aesthetic relationship, it's a relationship with a, a variety that's not well-known enough yet uh, that hopefully will become more well-known. Is that the reason that piques your interest, Stephen? Because you have a number of different grape varieties that you work with. And, and you've not, you have a choice. Obviously, you can rip everything else up and just plant Cabernet Franc if you want. But you you inherited, if you like, your forebears will say, Stephen, here we go. There's your vineyard. And we think you've done the handover. And by the way, we're out of here. And at that point you go, hmm, which is my favorite grape, grape variety. And, and, and how does that, that grow? For us, we started with it. Yeah. Right. It was number one. It was all right. we had for a while before we got a bit of Merlot and we got a little right. bit of experience of other stuff going. That was our number one. Everything hung off that. So it's right at the, the heart of what we do. But for you, you could have gone out and go, Ah, no, I, I like that block outside my front door next to the swimming pool. That's much more important. It's interesting to me anyway, that my family owned a lot of acreage back in the day. They planted vineyard. They planted, oh, I don't know, ended up being about a thousand acres or so in the eastern east side of San Jose yeah. in the South Bay in 1854-ish, let's just say. And then they planted in Monterey County, the first family to plant in Monterey County in 1961. And the, for a lot of California wine families back then, they plant, you just planted everything. You planted everything that you were already working with. In a very cold, Winkler scale one environment, you're planting Cabernet Sauvignon thinking you're going to get it, or not really even caring whether you get it right, which yeah. was obviously a problem. And all of the vine family vineyards is gone. And so I source fruit from very specific vineyards farmed by people who do a, a spectacular job, who are friends of mine. We have what are so we would consider estate vineyards in that we've been working with them for 20 plus years. And, and I manage them over time for partners of mine and that and the like. We, our brand made its name as it were, to whatever degree it did mm -hmm. on Cabernet Sauvignon. That was, it was, it was back in the mid nineties and it was, Hey, let's prove from our little appellation, although one of the oldest in California and the yeah. first really best one, I think let's prove we can do Cabernet Sauvignon as well as they do it in Napa and Sonoma. One wine, one, and we did, we, we, the press treated us well, our customers treated us, continue to treat us well, but it was, it, Cabernet Sauvignon can be gorgeous. And I think we make really nice cab stylistically. It's more acid driven, lower alcohol levels than typical yeah. Napa. Cabernet Franc is one that stirs for me both. It stirs emotions. It stirs, I write and I get, I don't know, I, um, my inner Anais Nin and, and various other folks in the in in the twenties. It for me, it's a grape that that you want to go to bed with your wife with. It's it stirs the loins as much as it stirs the imagination, right. and, and just something that's so exciting about the grape. And in two thousand twenty three, for us, we harvested about forty tons of Cab Franc this year. And or, or 2023, and we'll have 13 different iterations. We're doing a cat, a white cab franc, we're doing a Provencal style rose, yeah. we're doing a skin contact, like a four-day skin contact. It's red-ish, light red, meant to be a van de soif. It's meant to be drunk at the bistro yeah. thing. And then right. single vineyard, more serious wines. If I had my druthers, if I could do this, which I can't, unfortunately, it would just be cab franc. That's where we're headed for down the road. Maybe my son, maybe my grandkids say, thanks, grandpa. We're going to go cab franc completely. But our mission is our, our mission from the standpoint of wine production and family continuation in the business and trying to help our appellation is let's focus on a variety that yep. grows especially well where we are. And let's focus uh, our attention in the marketplace just on that grape. Let's show how well it grows in Livermore. Let's highlight the efforts made by our neighbors so that we can all hang a hat on a grape that is, and I want to ask you this question too, that we see, seem to see more of. Are you seeing more? I was reading an article today. In fact, a friend of mine from Champagne sent me an article, the monocepage of Bordeaux. 
And it was the kind of three-part drinks business article. Maybe you may have seen it. You got it on Cat Franc. And I'm super excited about these wines, most of which I can't afford. But are you seeing, and in your environment, it's different than it would be in, in California, for instance. Are you seeing a an increase in people people's excitement about Cab Franc as a, as a standalone grape? Yeah, I'm not sure it's been driven by consumers or driven by more by the industry that's getting mm. more excited about Cab Franc. Mm. And I even look at sort of the things in which you've been closely involved with Cabernet Franc Day and and, and everything I, else. It's starting to to raise the profile of a wonderful grape variety. Um, inside Bordeaux, there it, it's going to one of two ways. There's lots of things happening in, in Bordeaux. Some of it is created by climate change. Some of it's created by economic change. Um, so there's, there's a reduction in capacity ongoing at the moment. Um, and it's, it's a little bit controversial. These things are not very easy to, to manage somewhere in France, etc. Um I'm finding that also that as I do have customers coming up, it's quite divisive. If you like the Cabernet Franc, you're probably not going to like the Merlot. If you like the Merlot, then the Cabernet Franc is just going to be too light for you. What I'm seeing is from a producer point of view, which is reasonably integrated still in, in, in Bordeaux, if you make the grapes, you usually produce the wine. You might not sell them, which is something else, which is the non-integrated part of it, which that is also going to have to change over time. But what I'm seeing is that more people are working out that with climate change, Merlot has some challenges. And you highlight a little bit of it there when you talked about the Cabernet Sauvignon, that need for not only to have grapefruit, but to have some acidic balance in there. Mm -hmm. um, the climate keeps getting warmer to get and to hit Merlot right on the nail at the right point for maturity right. and acidity and sugar is just really becoming a lot harder. There are some ways around that, depending on the locality where you do it, and on the way in which you actually look after your vineyard and soil and everything else. But a lot of that is still out of reach for most people because it's not part of the classical teaching about how to grow vines and make fruit. Mm -hmm. But I'm seeing that the, the top producers quietly and very subtly, because in Bordeaux, it's not necessarily great media to talk about Cabernet Franc. If you're a producer in Saint-Emilion, it's all about your Merlot. Even though 50-odd percent of your beautiful blend could be Cabernet Franc. You have right. a tendency to talk more about the Merlot because the world wants to talk about it. Now, I understand in the USA, the word Merlot has a, has a dirty connotation for the last 20 years because of one film, but certainly inside somewhere like Bordeaux, you talk Merlot or you talk Cabernet Sauvignon, but you don't talk Cabernet Franc. But bit by bit, I see the smart producers putting in more Cabernet Franc and the less smart producers, the volume guys, continuing to take Cabernet Franc out. It doesn't have the yield. It doesn't have this. So let's put Merlot in. You didn't want to be growing Merlot in Bordeaux in 2023. That was just not the place to be doing it. The mildew just wiped 80% of it out. Wow. Um, no matter what system where you were treating conventionally, organically, biodynamically, anything, nothing right. worked. And suddenly when you see the big guy squeaking and it's for real. <laughs> it's like, exactly. Help. It's, exactly. It's not, not just because you don't know what you're doing down in your little village. It's, oh, help, this is a real problem. <laughs> uh, so I'm seeing that that trend coming in there. And of course, when you do get to somewhere like Bordeaux, the same will be for you guys in, in California, is that you do get a, a still a pretty full taste to your Cabernet Franc. And everybody, ah, oh, no, Cabernet Franc is just a green light wine. It's got, yep, maybe if you grow it in Canada, that might be true. Sorry to Canadian listeners. But it's grown in a Bordeaux or a Californian sense. You get a very much riper thing. And it shows how, how much diversity Cabernet Franc can bring in there, but can still preserve some great acidity in there. And that's something that people are looking for. Tone the alcohol down, which is really difficult as the temperature gets warmer. Absolutely. <clears throat> Absolutely. And they want that freshness and they want that taste. And certainly in a sales sense, be able to actually walk into customers down here in Australia and say, we've got something different. They go, yeah, yeah, you're from Bordeaux. How much more different can you get? It's got eight letters in it and it's the same every year. And you go, we're going to do the tasting or do you 
just like right. to take your own information. When you get the tasting and you get them a full Cabernet Franc out, they go, ah, shit, yep, I did not know that. <laughs> and that's really the way to go, and he, he's doing that. So the, the tonality is changing. The media is changing as it works out the, the success that Cabernet Franc is going to have. And slowly, I think the overall level of plantings are, are going to go up. Are you, a, are you a fan of the wines of Chinon and Bourgogne and Saumur? Absolutely, yeah. And I haven't done enough on the research. One of the, the problems is I need to get out of the office more. And that when you run a small wine, as you know yourself, it, it doesn't happen yeah. enough. And, you know, and for us, we're not hanging around waiting for the grapes to come in. It's, no, no, you've got to go and find them and make them. And that's good because it's right outside the back door, so you don't have far to walk. But even a, even a couple of acres is a lot of vineyard. Indeed, Nadi, it's you. You still got to you still got to work at it. You still got to. Gotta Indeed, work. it's there's a lot of tools. We we rent space in a larger winery in yeah. the U.S. There's a thing called an alternating proprietorship. So it's a, an agreement between a small winery and a large winery. TTP grants bonded winery status to you. It's not a custom crush operation. We do all of our own work. We just rent real estate. And in part of our agreement, we use their crusher to stemmer and we use their filter. Everything else is ours. It's scale is an interesting concept and it's interesting. It's interesting to think about. I think there are large wine companies that make some amazing wine, obviously. They have a lot of resources. I love the idea of being. I don't know what you're, what, how many cases are you guys producing? Well, we have about two and a half thousand bottles a year, 250 cases a year. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, is, yeah. is there, is it work? And we're doing about 3,000 cases, this is what we yeah. do. And most of what we do is direct to consumer. We have, we have a little yeah. bit of wholesale business in California gotcha. looking we're to try to get that. We're with you. Exactly. And, so and we need to focus. Exactly. You can't be all things to all people. And we don't have a million salespeople running around there trying to helping to sell the wine. The the Loire Valley expression of Cab Franc, and, and it, that's not specific enough. The Chinon expression and the Bourgogne expression and the Semur Champigny expression are all different. And they're all they all they share to me though a purity of fruit and a purity of concept about what Cabernet Franc can be. It's for me, it's the spiritual home of Cabernet Franc. And right. we look at I and I love Bordeaux as well. I Bordeaux is a lot more expensive on the high on the quality end, as it were, than even the best of wines outside of Clou Jar or something like that from the Loire. But there's that's an area that we want to emulate it to the only to the extent that there's a sense of there there's a historical reality and maybe there's a sense that from a, from a, an emotional standpoint as well that a purity of fruit in this particular case a purity of variety in this particular case makes for the best expression of this grape and i would have a hard time arguing the obverse of that I think that's true. I think also, Stephen, I think it is really interesting there. And if you compare, say, the Loire Valley versus Bordeaux, then in the Loire Valley, the varietal Cabernet Franc is part of the total DNA of that region. In Bordeaux, the emphasis is always on the assemblage or the blend, not specifically about trying yet it, it's changing a bit and i'm seeing a lot of people interested a bit in what we're doing because we want to explore a bit more of that varietal stuff but generally speaking it's about the blend not the individual grape variety mm -hmm. even though you want to use headline news with cabernet sauvignon and merlot sure that will shift progressively but what that tells me is then i want it was fascinating and we talked a little bit about this in that wonderful Cabernet Franc Day discussion mm -hmm. that we had, that when I went and participated in the, the first ever, what he called itself, a global symposium for Cabernet Franc, yeah, it was held in Bordeaux mm -hmm. and in Saint-Emilion, in a place called Chateau Jean-Fort, and it was an amazing day. But the best bit about it was watching the difference between the Loire Valley producers and the Bordeaux producers who... And I apologize again to the Bordeaux producers who maybe listen to this, but it's not their speciality. So the thinking process about that grape variety 
is different. Now, Chateau Jean Four is a bit, a bit different. He's starting to move as well, and they can see the benefits of that. Right. And they have an exceptional position to start from. But when you you see a Clos Rougeard and you talk to its general manager, and then you start looking at some of its history and look at the bits of the media about it, you, you see it in a very different light. We learned two or three things out of that whole experience in one day that is already changing, plus a couple of other little events and stuff that come up, as, as they always do in a winery, is changing the way we look at producing Cabernet Franc. And I can see that. I, I would not have seen that before. And I'm sure we have this conversation another 10 years from now. I'll be I, seeing different things as well. But it, it's telling me that we, we've gone down, we've, been, we've pushed ourselves a bit too much down a border route. And we need to, if we want to get some great expression back out of that, we've got to back up. And I've got to, I've got to go to places like Claude Rougeard, right. try and get myself in the door and have some of that discussion. Unfortunately right. for me as an engineer, that, that's not too difficult when I can see it. I, it goes on. Right. But just to listen to those guys in the Loire Valley talk about how they vinify and how they produce and then how they mature it. And you go, ah, shit, yeah. Easy. Got it. I got it now. And I see the problem right. here. I see the problem here. There's too much oak. We need more tank. We need whatever. And then there's problems right. how you manage the tank. So we'll solve that in a different way. And it, the lights come on. And then you keep listening to your customers at the same time. And when they drink, I don't know, it's our Cabernet Franc. I think it's when you drink Cabernet Franc in general. But they listen, you drink our Cabernet Franc, they go, wow, I'm getting fruit, freshness, and some crisp acidity. I just love that. Amen. And that can be for the wine that's 13.5% alcohol or something like that. And, and they go, but I'm still getting all of that. And I go, Thank you. I'll, I'll post that one on the wall and I must not forget it. And that's the style we've got to keep ourselves with because right. if you do get a really hot year in Bordeaux and they're becoming more frequent, it, it tends to push you out the other way and da, 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 da. there's some general winery problems that go with that as well. Sure. Um, you, there, there's a nervosity to to Cabernet Franc harvested in the in made from fruit harvested in that special range, wherever that happens to be. We're getting yeah. fruit in the Santa Cruz Mountains, which is historically a relatively cool place compared to Livermore Valley. We're getting pH levels like full physiologically ripe fruit at pH levels like three, four, which is just a beautiful thing in terms of stability of the wine from with bad bugs and the like, but just it, it gives you, provides for much more potential for long life, for more acid drive, for more pace, for more beauty. And we're finding that climate change affects different regions differently, obviously. And there's, it's a whole podcast on that. But I just, I, we, I, I was lucky enough and my wife and my partners in Cab Francapalooza were lucky enough to taste your wines when we were together last June, you via Zoom. Thank you so much for getting up so early. The Cab Francapalooza this coming year is in May. We would love if you were involved again as well from May 3rd through the 5th, we'll be doing a variety of different things again with the idea of continuing to try to show people in our area how great this grape is and how expressive it is and how different it can be from region to region. And I just wanted to let you know how much we enjoyed your wines. That's good. I haven't heard anything from anybody yet, so uh, I don't know. We'll see what comes up. But as you become more popular, you, you'd be... We, that be careful because you end up sending samples all over the world, and, and it's more difficult. That is, 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 is productive to the sales effort. <laughs> that that's one thing that you learn every time you do something if yeah. you're open to that. And we've learned some things from the first iteration of this festival that we will do better. You'll be hearing from us in the next probably week or so with respect to timing, and we'd love to have you involved again. I I I just want to thank you, David, so much for your time. We're going to be in Bordeaux on a river cruise, hosting a river cruise first April 4th through the 11th Damn. and in the Loire Valley the week before. Um, oh. But I, I pledge that I will get out to, to see uh, Paradise Rescued, to see you right. and hopefully taste more of what you're doing. Keep, keep us posted, uh, Stephen, because I don't get back there technically to about the 20th. Okay. Uh, okay. Because the week 
After that is a whole series of things for the, this Bordeaux thing called En Primeur, sure. uh, where the top guys have everybody around to to put their noses inside the first barrels and everything else and, right. and, and convince everybody done a great job. We'll have to talk to our very new vineyard manager, uh, Mikel, and I'll, he'll be happy to do a bit of that. He'll be apprehensive because he won't know particularly what he's doing yet, but that's okay. Got all the skills, he just doesn't understand where we fit with everything yet but we can do that and from if we get there in the morning or whatever we can do zoom ins at the same time or whatsapp and, and Fantastic. You know, talk to you while you're with Mikel and everything else so we'll, we'll be lovely we will definitely we'll try to work that out thank you again david appreciate the time welcome. And thank you we'll, we'll see you soon okay thanks. look forward to it have, have a great day. evening then, Steve. thank cheers you now. So much. see you soon cheers bye bye